Well, good day, Fellowship family. It's great to have you with us as we get into God's Word. Uh, I wanted to let you know that six months ago, it was negative one outside. <laughs> How about that? And I looked at the weather forecast. It's supposed to be in the 90s throughout the whole month of July. How about that? One thing that means, though, is that the temperature inside Fellowship Bible Church is always the same. It's always 62 in this room, right? So whether it's uh, January or July, you can wear a sweater to church. We do that so you'll stay awake. Um, I'm really thankful that you're here. We're actually concluding this series called Unafraid, in which we look at that opportunity, transfer our trust in ourselves or in people or things around us into faith and a deeper faith in God. And the areas that we fear alter our lives. Fear alters life. And so we want to talk about what this means. We So far, we've talked about the fear of death. We've talked about the fear of the unknown. We've talked about the fear of those people which keep us out of relationships that God has for us. We talked about the fear of failure. And this week, we're talking about the grand finale to commemorate July 4th, the fear of rejection. I say it's the grand finale because this is the one I fear the most. This has been a major challenge in my life. I've always wanted to be accepted. And I think there's something about us that's, that's good and that God created us to be fully known and completely loved. No secrets, everything out on the table to experience full knowledge, but also full acceptance and full love. Uh, the problem is, is that we don't always find that or want that from God. So we look for it in other places. And we think that this would actually get us out of middle school. You know, middle school is where that time where your, your life is so influenced by the people around you and the fear of rejection seems to be at its height. But it, it carries with us if we don't deal with this. This moves well into adulthood and it affects our relationships, our reviews, our interviews, Uh, We can have 99 people love us, but when one person doesn't accept us, it changes everything. The day goes from light till dark. Uh, Each of us can even change our schedules based on who's going to be there, based on how we feel we'll be accepted. And so the fear of rejection has a cost. It leads to some destructive patterns in our lives. It can lead to, first of all, comparison. We're always looking around us. We're always wondering, how are we doing? We're always looking. And what we will find when we compare is there's always someone who has more, makes more, is more, does more, did more. We can find all of that when we compare with the people around us. There's just something about a crowd that when you walk in, you always wonder, where do I stack up? Where do I stack up? It can also lead to compromise. The fear of rejection, especially when someone we're in a relationship wants us to do something we're not comfortable doing, but because they want us to do it, we don't want them to reject us, we'll compromise. Sometimes when we'll move around friendships, there's friendships who say things we wouldn't normally say or do things we wouldn't do that. When we're around them, they give us the pressure to compromise who we are, what we believe, what we stand for, because we fear rejection. It also can lead, and this is surprising, it can lead to a critical attitude. We can be very critical with the fear of rejection. We can look at what's in, what's out, who's in, whether or not you're in, and you can look and compare a life. I'm better than, I have more than, I'm not that bad. And it can cause you to be critical. Those who have been rejected tend to reject. 
just like those who are hurt tend to hurt. Uh, it, we can be very critical with this, and it can also lead to a commendation. And what I mean by that is self-commendation, always presenting the best side of yourself because you don't want people to see. And this leads us, leads us to really where it leads us to is, is isolation and secrets and disappointment. Self-disappointment and even disappointment with others, and we fear that. Now, as I said when I started, this has been a significant fear in my life. Ever since I've been three years old all the way up to, hello, I'm 53 years old. This has been a major challenge for me. I remember when I felt a call to go into the ministry and I got some different people who I respected and I sat down with them and I just shared, I think God wants me to go into the ministry. What do you think about that? I remember one experienced man said this. He said, Joe, I think that's a great call and I hope you do it, but here's one thing that I'm concerned about you. You love to be liked. And I don't know a pastor who was loved or liked by everyone. And so that's going to be a struggle for you. I tucked that into my mind and I went to seminary, went to four years at Dallas Theological Seminary, graduated and took a first full-time position in a church in Chattanooga, Tennessee. And in Chattanooga, they know how to smile when you preach. Everybody's leaning in. Everyone comes up to you after and says, you are such a wonderful preacher. My goodness, you're great. And it causes you to look around you and see, boy, am I really this great? And it it tends to sometimes keep you dependent on other people's opinions or on the polls or on their attitudes. Well, everything was going great until someone, I had to move someone out of a ministry position uh, because they weren't doing a great job at it. And I wanted to move them and they were really ticked at me. And so I'd have a room of 600 people that I would preach to, and then there was that one person, and they sat right there. No one's in that seat today, but someone right there, and they would look at me with that scowl like this while I preached. And I was so addicted to the smile in the South that that scowl just made a difference. It even changed the way I preached. It had a tremendous influence in my life. And I've even realized as I've uh, become a pastor here in Topeka, and our church has grown tremendously over the 16 years that we've been here, I've realized that's still an area I have to be careful for. I love to be liked. And what God has taught me is he's taught me well, through these years, ultimately, that I don't have to be liked by everyone. And if I'm going to follow Jesus, I won't. That's a guarantee. If you're going to follow Jesus, you're not going to be loved or liked. Matter of fact, Jesus phrased it this way, really tough words. But if the world hates you, remember they hated me first. So not loved, not liked, hated. (laughs) That's kind of the extreme, isn't it? And yet Jesus almost guarantees that if you're going to be a follower of me, the world and some in this world, and I would even say most... Is going to, are going to hate that message that he's given us. And so as I look at this, here's what's been my redemption. Here's what's been my confidence, is that God's acceptance of my life is the only way out of man's rejection. And so it's to a man who feared rejection that the gospel had to grow in deeper, in a deeper way. It's to my fear of rejection that I had to awaken to God's acceptance of me. And I would say this, I would say this, 
that I knew this all along. It wasn't an issue of me knowing this. And for many of us, it's not an issue of knowing that God has accepted us through Christ. The issue is acting on it and living in the confidence of that because we can be very swayed to, to the pull and, and the fear of rejection in us. You know, one thing that we need to remember with the gospel is that we really are accepted. Everyone who put their faith in Jesus Christ is accepted and loved by our God. Uh, John was radically transformed by the love of God as he wrote his life of Christ in the gospel of John. Love just goes over and over. In first, second, and third John, letters he wrote to the church about the love of God. Over and over, he writes love of God. And, and the love of God just reminded him it's not in the rejection of man that you get your worth. It's in the acceptance of God. He says this, see, uh, other translations, if you have, it says behold. In other words, get your mind around this. What kind of love the father has given to us that we should be called children of God. That's how God views us because we're accepted in Christ. You're God's child. He says, and that is who we are or and so we are. The reason why the world doesn't know us is that it didn't know him. Beloved, we are God's children now. And what we will be has not yet appeared. But when we know, but we know that when he appears, we shall be like him because we shall see him as he is. And everyone who thus hopes in him purifies himself as he is pure. Do you see what John is saying? He's saying, some of you are not loved by people right now. And some of you don't feel the acceptance of God. But right now, as I write this, right now as I write this, who you are right now is not going to be necessarily who you will be in the future. But when he appears, we'll be like him. And we will spend eternity in heaven living in the confidence of the acceptance of God. So right now, hope in that church. And as you hope, you make that transfer, you make that transformation in your own life of no longer needing, no longer being addicted to the approval ratings or the polls or the acceptance of man. We can bank it all on the acceptance of God. Paul was so transformed by this principle that he ultimately, it changed the way he looked at God and the way he treated others. That's why he would say in Romans chapter 15, He would say, therefore, welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you for the glory of God. He knew that his life wasn't about personal accomplishment. It wasn't about how much he made. It wasn't about his role or his position in life. It was really for the glory of God. He knew it was to make God greater on earth as he is in heaven. And because of that, he lived in the way that he was loved by God. That's how we escape. That's how we get out. That's how we confront the fear of rejection. And here's what I believe. We all want out. We all want out of this fear of rejection controlling us and moving us and compromising and comparing in our lives. We want a way out. And the gospel has come in. The gospel has come in and it said this. You're worse off than you think. We're worse off than we think. But we're loved more than we could imagine. And in the worst of us, we see the best of God. And we come into his acceptance and he says, no, you're not accepted. The world's going to accept you on how much you make and what you do and what you've accomplished and what you have. And God says, no, no, none of that. Not by works that you've done, but it's just because of my mercy. 
It's because of my grace. I knew you couldn't do it. I knew you couldn't get enough or do enough. I, I had to do that for you. And so that's why I sent Jesus. And the gospel tells us that God demonstrated his love like this. Before we turned around, before we looked to God, God looked to us and he brought his son, Jesus, to this world who lived a perfect life, who died on a cross, and who rose again on the third day. And it's everything we have with God is because of Jesus. And God accepts Jesus. His work, his sacrifice, his resurrection. And when we believe in Jesus, we're with Jesus. And so because we have Jesus, we're accepted by God. As you've been accepted, accept others. No other life kind of gives this detail in the New Testament of what the acceptance of God meant than the life of the Apostle Paul. If you have your Bibles, I want to show you an instance in his life where he had to trust in the acceptance of God over the rejection of man. It's in 2 Corinthians chapter 10. Hopefully you have your Bibles, and if you have a Bible at home, bring it here so we can open it up and get into it and see it before your eyes so you can hide it in your heart. As always, we also have Bibles on the side here. If you want to get up and grab one now, you can have one and keep it. If, it's, if you don't have a Bible, we want you to have it in your hand. Paul says in 2 Corinthians, and it's fascinating just to read First and Second Corinthians because it's not this fuzzy, good-feeling kind of book. There's a lot of instruction, and it's because they were a train wreck. It, it was, you know, like Philippians, Paul will say, I love you with the affection of Christ, and I can't wait to come see you. Paul in First and Second Corinthians says, I'm coming. <laughs> in other words, you guys are messed up. And it's because they were so swayed by their culture. They lived in a very influential, affluent city. Corinth was a a jewel in the Roman Empire. And its values were wisdom, wealth, and personal power. Um, We would see that today as intelligence, wealth, and opportunities. That's kind of our values in our world today. And Paul would confront that because when the church, he went and planted that church. And he set it up and he poured his life into it. He calls himself the matchmaker, which matched the church with the groom, Jesus. And he called them to serve him and love Jesus and to live for him. And they just got embroiled. There were so many issues. That's why in, in, in first Corinthians and second Corinthians, there's like chapters that have 56 verses in them because Paul is explaining and he's restating and he's recorrecting and he said you went too far on this earlier correction now come back to balance and he would call them to the wisdom of God over the foolishness of man he would call them to stop comparing themselves with the world and start with a new measure of God's love and his grace through the wisdom of God and the person and the work of Jesus Take a look at what he says here in 2 Corinthians chapter 10, beginning with verse 7. He says, look at what's before your eyes. If anyone is confident that he is Christ, let him remind himself that just as he is Christ, so also are we. For even if I boast a little too much of our authority, which the Lord gave for building you up and not for destroying you, I will not be ashamed. Why does he write this and say, ultimately, if someone else says they're a Christian, remember, we're Christ followers also. It's because this group came in from outside of Corinth who said that they were Christians and they called themselves super apostles and they tried to hijack the church and they started picking apart Paul to make the church more dependent on them. 
He started comparing their lives with Paul and, and stacking themselves up as better than Paul. And Paul would have to defend his role and his right as an apostle and as a, as a leader in their church. But ultimately, he would show that he doesn't have to commend himself. Look what he say if you move down to verse 17. He says, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. For it is not the one who commends himself who is approved, but the one whom the Lord commends. In other words, ultimately, we don't stand on other people's acceptance of us. We don't, we aren't, you know, looking around for people's approval. It's ultimately God's approval and his acceptance in our lives. It's who God says we are, not what others say we are. So look to the eyes of God, church. He would do that. And he learned how to seek the approval or the acceptance of God over the acceptance of man. He was able to navigate this rejection of him in Corinth, still holding firm to God and being confident in his defense of the gospel in that church. And church, you're going to have to fight. You're going to have to fight in your own life and in this world for the acceptance of God. It doesn't mean you work for it. It just means there's such a powerful sway in our lives to be accepted by others that it's easy to look to other, others if you're not intentional and lose your focus of who God is and his approval. It has nothing to do with how much income you make, the season of life you're in, personal accomplishments, the house you live, the car you drive, the amount you have in your bank account. It has everything to do with the richness and the generosity and the grace of God. Paul learned, first of all, to be faithful to God's call. His way out was to be faithful to God's call over comparing his life with others. If you look at that passage that we're looking at in in 2 Corinthians chapter 10, he says this. He says, when they measure themselves by one another and compare themselves with one another, they are without understanding. And without understanding, if we could just interpret that, it really means they're foolish. They're foolish when we do this. Whenever you compare your life with someone else sitting next to you or someone around you, you're going to come out either feeling superior or arrogant or feeling like you're a failure. We've never been made, we've never been crafted to compare our lives with other people. We're called to see and look to God. And we're called to move away from comparing one another, comparing our lives against someone else. Paul said, remember your call. Remember your call. And this trace is traced back all the way to his first letter. First Corinthians chapter one, verse 26, he says this. For consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to the worldly standards. Many were not powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But this is what God did. He chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even the things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. See, when you stack up to God, when you come up to God and you think, where's my standing with God? And you go, God, it's because I'm wealthy. God, it's because of all the good things I've done. God, it's because of my intelligence. It's because of my accomplishment. God says, nope, you can't boast about those things in front of me. Sorry. They just aren't things that are that important to me. What ultimately Paul says is we ultimately have to boast in Christ. 
We've got to post in Christ. And God uses the weak. He uses those on the fringe, the margins of life. He uses the poor. He uses those who are meek and gentle and lowly and humble to accomplish his purposes. Paul says, look at this. Look what you're doing, guys. Look what you're doing. Think about your calling. You came into Christ not looking like the world around you. Why, when you came to Christ, are you trying to look like the world around you? The church has always struggled with that. It's always looked at the ways of the world and said, how can we be like that? Rather than looking to Christ and say, how can we be like him? And we've got to be careful on this. We do not have the right to change God's unaltering, perfect word and his truth. Now, we can change the way we communicate his truth, but we cannot change the truth. And so we're called to that. Stop comparing. Remember your calling. Can I just say this? Everyone in this room who's a believer, you have been called to imitate Christ, to make him greater. That's your calling. And God could care less about how much you make or even your past resume that you, or your current resume or your failures. He calls to make his name greater in you. And some of us, We need to be leveled. We need to be humbled before we realize the power of God in our lives. Other of us, others of us just need to remember this. Just remember God works through the weak. He works through the humble. No other place demonstrates this more than traveling to Israel right now. I remember I, we just took a recent trip and in past trips, I always start out at the seaport of Caesarea by the sea because that's a Roman town built by, built by Herod the Great. And it was all made out of Italian marble. So it gleamed. It was a white city that just boasted about Rome. And to our understanding of the scriptures, Jesus never went to Caesarea by the sea. Even though it was within walking distance of Galilee, most of his ministry was done off the grid in the margins of small towns called Capernaum, Chorazim, Bethsaida. Those small towns in Galilee, off the grid, is where the King of Kings and Lord of Lords, and God used the life of Jesus to influence us us tremendously that the Lordship of Christ reigning in our hearts today. It's no wonder now that we name our children Peter and James and John and Mary and we name our dogs and cats Herod and Caesar. (laughs) Because God builds his kingdom. If you're pregnant, don't name him Herod. Just trust me. It won't be good for business. Okay, second, Paul committed to an internal authenticity rather than external appearances. When you live for the approval of others, there's going to be that temptation of always, how do I look? How will this look? What will people say if they knew this about me or if they found out about me? And so you're living in that fear. And Paul is saying, no, no, where's your heart? Where's your heart? Before you worry about people around you, Think about the spirit within you. How does he have freedom to move and act? And how is your heart right now? Process your heart before you process the polls. 
And what Paul said is this. He says, if anyone is confident that he is Christ, let him remind himself that just as he is Christ, so also are we. In other words, we're all in this because of the work of Christ. We're not in this because of personal uh, accomplishment. We're not in this because of our performance. We're not in this because of our good looks. We're in because of Christ's work for us. It's the great leveler. The ground is level at the cross. None of us can earn it. None of us deserve it. But all of us can have it because of the grace and the kindness and the mercy of God. Paul called everyone back to an authentic faith in Christ. So much so that he counted everything that he accomplished as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus the Lord. His mission was to know Christ better. Later he would say to know him and the power of his resurrection so that he might someday attain the resurrection of the dead. He, he wanted to so be close with Jesus that his life just reflected in all things, in all ways, the person and the work of Jesus. Why? Because he was absolutely thankful and grateful for the acceptance of God. He lived in that acceptance of God. That means he could focus on a true, authentic faith. And therefore, it, it changed the way he treated others. He viewed his life was to build others up rather than tear them down. And he would explain this in this passage. You know, when you're when you're worried about rejection or, the, or you're unsure about the acceptance of others, the tendency is to be critical of people. And Paul said, no, that's not why I have authority. I have authority to build you up. Look what he says here. He says, for even if I boast a little too much of our authority, which the Lord gave for building you up and not for destroying you, I will not be ashamed. Look at that. The purpose of the authority that he was given by God as an apostle was to build up that church. It wasn't to tear him down. And this group who tried to woo the Corinthian church away from Paul was was ultimately destroying Paul in the process. Paul said, no, I'm here to build you up. Think about it, how life would be different. In those places where you feared rejection the most, if you saw yourself as an instrument to build people up rather than tear them down, instead of comparing, you just said, I'm going to be a blessing. Instead of, instead of stacking myself up with them, I'm just going to humble myself and I'm going to, I'm going to be a positive influence of the glory of God in this environment. Think about how relationships would be. Think about how your home might be. Think about how your workplace or your school might be. If you said, I am a child of God here. I'm here to build up, not tear down. Think about how your church would be different if you were here to build up and not tear down. Paul also trusted vulnerability in the hands of God over the superiority in the eyes of man. And as you read 2 Corinthians chapter 10, if you continue reading all the way through chapter 11 and chapter 12, Paul really shows his weakness. And when you fear rejection, about the last thing you want to do is tell them your flaws, right? Um, If you fear the relationship ending, you tend to want to lean on your strengths. You want to only show the positive side, and you don't want to be humiliated. And what Paul does over these next two chapters is he humiliates himself. And he shows us a pattern on how to live. 
they he they kept saying how great those super apostles were and paul said you want to talk about super apostles he starts out and he says let me just be foolish like them for a second i of all the apostles i have all the followers of jesus i know what persecution looks like and i put my life on the line for christ and on the, the line for you when i shared the gospel no one else has been persecuted more than me i was flogged 3 times i was i was given by the jewish authorities i was given 40 lashes minus 1 39 times with a with a strap he was tied to a post and beaten his body was humiliated he he literally had the scars that he suffered for christ all over him i mean we can have tattoos he had scars and they spoke about his commitment to the lord so when that church and those super apostles started nitpicking and they said things like this paul is a weak individual and he's ugly. Boy, ugly jokes are just not good. That's one of our greatest fears, that I'm ugly. Some of us, no matter how beautiful we look, we look in the mirror and we see ugly. We talk to people all the time who feel that way, which reminds me of Sir Winston Churchill when he was giving an, a, an appeal in Parliament and he was drunk. And one lady stood up in the gallery and said, Sir Winston, you are drunk. And he says, woman, you are ugly. And in the morning, I'll be sober. (laughs) That's our fear. That's our fear is an insult like that, right? We got nothing. We got nothing. Paul was a second century says, uh, commentary says that Paul was a short, bald man with a limp. He did not demonstrate this Roman empire of a statue. They used to carve statues and their, their statues, folks, their bodies did not look like this. They were hawked out on on steroids and their muscles were just bulging and everyone would say, that is the measure of a man. Paul said, I got nothing on that. He was balding. See that there? That's what he kind of looked like. I call it my, halo, my, my holy halo, okay? And they said, Paul, you can't listen. The guy's not that intelligent, and he doesn't speak well. He's totally unrefined, not like us. We are good orders. We know how to speak. And of course, if you're an English professor, there are some sentences, even in the Bible, where Paul's sentences run on and on and on. You go, you just mark up your Bible and you give him a D or something like that. But think about what Paul is doing. He's getting so wrapped up in the greatness and the glory and the love of God that he just goes, he checks out of grammar. It's okay to do that. Our millennials do that all the time, like this and like that and like that. And they're explaining and we we love people to share that. Emotion is okay when it trumps grammar. And Paul would say, no, ultimately you need to see my love for you. My love for you, my love for Christ. They'd pick on Paul because he didn't take an offering from them. And it was one of the only churches where Paul said, no, you don't give to me. I'll be a tent maker 
and I'll serve the Lord and I'll make my, the money through my job that I know how to do because I know how much money values. You, might, you value money and you want to control with money. Can you imagine that? A culture that saw their worth based on how much they made, what they had, how much they have in the bank and the car, the chariot they drove and the house they lived in. I mean, I can't imagine a culture that thinks like that. But Paul said, no, you will not do that with me. And so these super apostles came in and said, Paul, come on, man. I mean, he doesn't trust you. If he would trust you, he would receive that offering, which is good. I mean, the Lord's servant deserves double honor, double tipping here. And so they just worked in all those. And besides this, Paul's message is boring. All he talks about is Jesus and the gospel. Come on. We have supernatural manifestations. We have visions from God. God appeared to us, and we're here to share it with you. Paul just goes into this whole picture of, okay, you want to go down that route. You want to be this foolish and compare my life with theirs. Okay, let's just do that. I know a man, he speaks of himself in the third person, chapter 12. He says, for 14 years ago, This man was taken into the spirit and he saw a great vision and revelation of God. And and here's my description of it. Words can't explain it. I'll boast about that. No sooner does he share that experience and he says, and to keep me from being conceited, God gave me a thorn in the flesh. Some people in commentaries uh, and scholars believe that it was a physical ailment. Others believe it was emotional or uh, a... uh, um, a psychological disorder. Others once thought he'd, he had a physical limp in his body. But he says, to keep me from being conceited, God gave me this. And I prayed three times, God, take it away, take it away. But God said this, my grace is sufficient for you. For my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses so that the power of Christ may rest on me. Do you see this? God is glorified in weakness. Our culture sees sickness and suffering and the lack of prosperity as curses from God, whatever God there may be. And our God says, no, I'll use that. And I'll use that. And I'll use you if you're available to me. Because ultimately, at the end of the game, you're not going to get to the end and say, look what I have done. You're going to be ultimately, for eternity, will say, look what God has done. Look what God has done. Look what he was able to do. Look what he is doing for eternity so that the power of Christ may rest on us. He was okay then being vulnerable with his weakness. When you fear rejection, that's the last place you want to go. But it is the way God leads He leads leads through weakness. And ultimately here, we've got to look to God's eyes over man's expectations. I have to look at the expectations I have for myself. Think about that. I used to operate under this in this fear. Everyone should like me. That is an expectation that cannot be fulfilled this side of heaven. It will never happen. It's unreal. Here's another one. I can please my wife all the time. That's another one. I can be and should be happy all the time. Those are man's expectations, right? I can get along with everyone all the time. None of us can do that. 
So that's an expectation that will always be unmet and we will always be frustrated with this. Here's this one. God always accepts me. (laughs) That's one that's met. And it's not met by me, it's met by Christ. My way out of rejection is God's acceptance. Paul looked to the eyes of God for his acceptance. Therefore, he would say in verse 18, he says, it's not the one who commends himself who is approved, but the one whom the Lord commends. Folks, we need God's acceptance in our lives. It's the only way out. It's the only way out, and it comes back to remind us who God is and who we are. He is our father. We are his children. And what we will be has not yet appeared. But we know that when he appears, we will be like him because we will see him as he is. And everyone who thus hopes in him purifies himself as he is pure. Folks, the only way out is God's acceptance. So here's my question, just two. Number one, have you trusted in the acceptance of God through Jesus Christ for you? None of us earn it, none of us deserve it, but everyone in this room can have God's acceptance through Christ. Christ lived for you, he died for you, he rose again from the dead. Put your faith and trust in him. Many of us have come from religious backgrounds, but we've not seen this relationship issue. We've not seen that I am related to God only through Christ. So it's only in Christ. It's not by my works. It's not me being here. It's not being good. So my good deeds outweigh my bad deeds or being moral or anything like that. It is in trusting in the completed work of Jesus for me and trusting him to lead me out of sin into salvation. Only Jesus can do that. Right now, in the simplicity of where you're at, if that's new and you want that, Trust in the acceptance of God through Christ. Just say this, a simple prayer to Jesus. Jesus, thank you for living and dying and rising again for me. God, thank you for accepting me through Christ. I believe in Christ. I receive his work in my life. And now I want to live in your acceptance. I want to accept what you see as right and good for me. So I turn from sin to trust and follow you. And if you believe that, and if you transfer your trust, you are now in. You are a child of God. Live in that acceptance. And church, for those of you who have known Jesus, whether it's Jim for just a few seconds, or whether you've known him from three to 53, I, I'm Joe, live in this acceptance. It can't be just something we know. It has to be something we live. Let's pray for strength in that and the power of the Holy Spirit in our lives. Would you close with me in prayer? Heavenly Father, Now that you have shown us the truth, move us into action. Now that you have shown us who you are and who we are and that you accept us and that you love us, move us, Lord, now to be so sold out to you and so confident in you that we're okay. We can handle the rejection of man because we have the acceptance of you. Lord, we live to make the name of Jesus greater. So help us to live in such a way that reflects how we have been accepted by you in the way that we have accepted or accept others. It's in the name of Jesus we pray. Amen.